Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone, and Neil Garfield, Radio Show Land. Today is September 20th, 2018. Charles Marshall here again with my good friend and colleague of sorts, Bill Padalo. And today is September 20th, 2018. Good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast, and good evening for those of you on the East Coast. And for those of you somewhere in between, you can take your pick how you'd like your greeting. I am broadcasting live from Southern California. West Coast Foreclosure Show is brought to you on alternate weeks, and Neil Garfield will continue broadcasting on alternate weeks alternate Thursdays, that's when we always have the show, alternate Thursdays. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com, and it's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, the subject of today's show relates to a couple of recent wins. One is quite recent in the litigation arena of plaintiff's foreclosure cases. Now, one is truly a West Coast case of sorts, It's actually out of the Eastern District of California, Uh, but it is in California. Now, that's a case that started out in state court and was removed to federal court. And I'll talk a bit about that in the second half of the program today. And first, Bill and I are going to address the Massachusetts case. And that case, as some of you who may have had a chance to see Neil's blog today. You may have even been able to download the order related to today's show. Short case name, Starkey versus Deutsche Bank National Trust Company. Yes, indeed, another Deutsche Bank case. So what we have here 
is plaintiff's case in Massachusetts. Uh, most of the listeners here will recall that Massachusetts is a judicial foreclosure state. So in, in Massachusetts, what you will typically see is the homeowner, the quote-unquote borrower will be on the defense side. But here they're suing preemptively and proactively Deutsche Bank National Trust Company. And it is connected with the foreclosure. So this case originated some time ago, yet the decision only came down late last year. Uh, the original civil action was actually commenced in November of 2009. So the fundamental holding here, I should say, I'm going to talk about an aspect of the holding, and then Bill will address some other issues. One piece that's important in this Ferreira, yes, that's Ferreira. We've talked about that a number of times on this show. That's that federal statute that is specifically involved and implicated in the whole mess where Washington Mutual in early 2008 basically threw a a company bankruptcy, essentially a liquidation of the company, moved their assets, so to speak, to Chase through a receivership, through the bankruptcy system. And one of the fundamentals of, of any bankruptcy is claims are presented in bankruptcy by creditors, ostensible creditors, purported creditors. Debtors on their side will, will then possibly oppose the claim and they, they can file an opposition to the proof of claim filed by some purported creditor. Or, as, as you often see Ferreira applied in these cases, what so often happens is, and a lot of my listeners will know this, because unfortunately a lot of the listeners know the, the bankruptcy courts. They've been in and out of them maybe only once, maybe multiple times. It's unfortunately a, a path not uncommonly trodden uh, when you are in a foreclosure situation. And one of the aspects to bankruptcy is you have to list all your claims. Now you do that on Schedule B, and there's kind of a, it's not so much a fiction, but I would certainly call it a finesse of the entire bankruptcy system because you can, you can have a foreclosure claim against the supposed servicer, against the supposed sales trustee, against other chain of title institutional players who then become defendants in a foreclosure action. Now, if you're a plaintiff, whether it's California or somewhere else, when you sue for damages, yes, it's very common that you sue for money damages as part of your claim. Though in the vast majority of cases, what, what plaintiffs are looking for is equitable relief, 
and they're looking for declaratory relief, particularly a declaration that essentially voids the rights of the defendant to collect of the supposed servicer of the supposed nominal trust who may or may not claim to actually be in possession of the underlying note that's at issue in these types of bankruptcies and in these types of cases. So the short of it is a claim in bankruptcy speak universally and I'm not going to say that there's ever an exception to this, but this is the understood definition. It's the black letter definition, and it is virtually always the definition you will see. Uh, By definition, a claim in bankruptcy is for monetary compensation. It's for a monetary amount. It's for a dollar amount. If you have a demand in a litigation for equitable relief, for declaratory relief, for some kind of relief that does not take the form of money per se, then that type of claim should not be subject to bankruptcy analysis. So what happens, remember, with a lot of lawsuits when the other side, the institutional defendants, they'll say, as they said in this Massachusetts case, they said, well, FERREA applies here and they, they, uh, they didn't even brief the argument properly, which I think I will give this court credit for, for noting that they didn't even brief properly within the pleadings. Nevertheless, the court, I think, rightly addressed their Ferreira argument, and it said, look, the defendants are trying to say that Ferreira wipes out all of plaintiff's claims. Well, a lot of plaintiff's claims didn't relate to money damages, A lot of plaintiff's claims related to declaratory relief. And a lot of plaintiff's claims also were used to assert affirmative defenses of a type. Now, in that context, it is not the case. It is absolutely not the case that you will... What I'm trying to say is the... Affirmative defenses and declaratory claims will be outside of money judgment territory. And the court rightly found that. The court rightly found that Perea doesn't apply. And the reason it doesn't apply is one of the reasons is the claims in this lawsuit weren't even about uh, money damages primarily. They were about declaratory relief. So for here... There's a footnote, actually, in this order, and it also notes that the plaintiff's claims for money damages against Washington Mutual or J.P. Morgan Chase, those are to be addressed when, when the case is remanded, because the case was remanded. So I like this ruling for that, that uh, reason, too. This ruling is leaving open the possibility that just because there are money damages involved as part of the causes of action, that does not mean that Ferreira applies. So what, what's your take on this, uh, Bill? I know you have a number of angles that you've been able to, uh, to parse out from the review you've done of this case. Well, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a good take on the Ferreira angle. And 
I, I think this FIREA argument in defense um, is, again, that there's very little tread left on the tire uh, when you look at the analysis in the context of this type of a case with Washington Mutual loan and, and, a, and a trust being involved. And, and we talked on a previous show about the Tenth Circuit coming back and saying, listen, if, if you're alleging that the uh, behaviors of uh, the assignments and endorsement production and things are happening post-receivership. Obviously, FIREA doesn't apply. So I think there's a lot of ways now um, uh, that you know FIREA doesn't have much of a leg to stand on, especially if uh, Chase tries to use that in um, it, with the FDIC takeover. But what I really like about this case, I mean, there's a number of good takes out of here, um, but. The appellate court and the lower court, you know, they really take Chase to task, and the trust, really, um, for not clarifying uh, the question to the court as to who owned the note and the mortgage at, at, at the time of the receivership or when. Because here you have a case where, and I like the way Neil posted this in his uh, article yesterday, that, you know, you can't sit in a chair with, you know, in two chairs with, with one, you know, with one ass, right? Um, and this is what you know, people have been facing fighting this type of fact pattern in cases all over the country for years and years and years. And the court here is basically saying that, look, there's an issue of fact as to uh, when this loan was acquired. Irregardless of when you have the assignments, uh, when they're dated or whatever, that doesn't really prove anything. Court is really saying there's an issue of fact and the, and, um, uh, the homeowner is entitled to discovery. They're entitled to facts and information regarding when the transfer occurred and so on and so forth. And I think this is where uh, Chase certainly does not uh, want to go uh, because, as we all know, they've been claiming for years that they acquired all of these loans through the purchase and assumption agreement with the FDIC. And what I see happening now, and I can in, in cases that I'm testifying in and and depositions that I'm involved in, um, not from a witness perspective, but also assisting in litigation support on taking uh, uh, 30B6 witness depositions on these uh, cases, is that there's a shift in the story now when 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 the evidence is clearly showing that there's no schedule of assets on the PAA, when there's no way for them to identify any specific loan that went through the FDIC from WAMU, and all the evidence is now stacking up uh, to show that there isn't any definitive proof of what was acquired. Um, the story is now shifting to, well, we got the servicing rights. And it's getting real uh, obvious and, and clear that um, they realize that they are they're in some deep water because now you've got uh, the Florida case that we talked about uh, two weeks ago on the program where Chase's own witness comes out and says, listen, these assignments contain material misrepresentations. Uh, and, and she talks about testifying in many other cases with similar assignments when they say that beneficial uh, ownership rights are being assigned through those assignments. She's ad she admits that these are material misrepresentations. Well, Really, what this boils down to now is, look, if you're going to start to, to, to take this position that it was just the servicing rights, um, then the big question is, okay, then who's the, who's the investor? All right? There's got to be an investor. And this is what 
this is what they've been avoiding. This is what they've been stonewalling. This is what they've been concealing since day one. And what I like about this appellate decision out of Massachusetts is, is in their analysis, analysis they say, if, as the, PA, the PSA suggests, the note and the mortgage were sold to the trust in 06, they were no longer assets of Washington Mutual on the day it went into receivership. So that's pretty clear that, uh, you know, splitting hairs and trying to say, well, it's, you know, ownership rights and servicing rights, you know, it's all the same thing. It's an asset and we got the asset and they're trying to, they're trying to mesh that all in there. And, and I think that hair is certainly, that's what they're trying to do is play games with the whole definition of asset and now that this this direction they're taking to say no it's servicing assets okay well now not only um is the court saying we have we're entitled or this the homeowners here are entitled to discovery on these issues and now do we and we know specifically where to get and what to look for in discovery to answer these questions but then the key question is is who's the investor and um it's kind of interesting because, you know, for years a lot of people keep coming and they come to me or they've been trying to make the argument that in 2009 when the law changed in terms of uh, ownership notice where the within 30 days of ownership sale and transfer of the loans, that notice must be given to the borrowers. Well, people have been screaming, well, for years this federal law has been completely uh, – you know, ignored and violated by the servicers um, because none of these transfers or notices are being sent. Well, maybe you have to kind of look at this from a different perspective and a different angle. Maybe the reason why they were never sent is because these loans were sold years ago, and uh, and therefore now with with uh, a ruling like this, where the the court actually analyzed the pooling and servicing agreement, they actually went in. And, and and utilized the, the language in there and said, based on this language, you've got issues of material fact. Well, I mean, every case I've worked on with a securitized trust, uh, the PSAs present issues of material fact that should preclude summary judgment or, or whatnot. Um, but here they're saying, okay, we're looking at this PSA, and now this is creating issues of fact. Well, um, I think... I think this is this is a huge uh, victory um, because now J.P. Morgan Chase is simply going to have to explain who those investors are if they simply acquired servicing rights, and in that, their uh, the borrowers are entitled to all the ancillary documents uh, regarding the securitization, uh, when the transfers occurred, who the parties are, the uh, the trust agreements, all of that, and um, I think you and I both well know that. Uh, that this is are are they are they going to comply with that? Because if they start doing it now, it's going to subject a lot of uh, exhuming of a lot of bodies over the years where they've taken uh, you know a different position. What do you think of that? No, I I agree with you completely on that. I mean the the fact though that they're their positions will be wholly inconsistent, and you 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 so often see this in an unlawful detainer environment. Uh, I'll just I'll just briefly describe something that I see all the time, just by way of analogy. It's not directly related, but I think 
listeners will see what I'm getting at. The inconsistent positions that are taken from the institutional players on the other side are just galling. What, what you'll see in an unlawful detainer context is that when the basic unlawful detainer case has been filed by their side, and it's always the nominal trust, if the servicer does not claim to have ownership rights. Because as in bankruptcy court, to bring a proof of claim, you must be the purported actual holder of the note. Just so, same standard to bring an unlawful detainer complaint where you're claiming to own the property. So there with the unlawful detainer complaint, it's on a fast track to begin with the legal procedure. Things can happen literally within weeks. And so they will argue, oh, title doesn't matter really here. And they, they try to minimize as much as possible any scrutiny of title or any issues about chain of title and say it's irrelevant, it's possession only that they're after. And then if a savvy unlawful detainer defendant files a motion to consolidate the unlawful detainer case with their unlimited lawsuit, let's say that they have an unlimited lawsuit against the same players, and that's not uncommon to see that juxtaposition in California where you've got an unlimited lawsuit that's been going on for a while, and yet it doesn't happen a lot in litigation, but you do see it. Despite the litigation, the property will go to sale then what you often will see is the, the again, the savvy uh, unlawful detainer defendant will, will try to get the case of the unlawful detainer consolidated with the, uh, the main case, their unlimited lawsuit case. And there's very good case law and rationale behind that. They're, both cases involve ultimate title of the subject property. Both cases involve very similar parties, sometimes identical parties. So it makes perfect sense to consolidate the cases, except what, what the other side will say when you try to consolidate the cases is, oh, well, no, this, 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 these cases should not be consolidated. We should, we should not even be talking about title. And the, they'll go back to the possession-only argument that they use when you're trying to uh, defend yourself an unlawful detainer. But remember, an unlawful detainer, they do have to discuss somewhat the title issues. And they'll say, yes, we have title, we have legitimate title, we have the controlling ownership documents, or we otherwise have right to proceed with the unlawful detainer. They want the court to assume title they will prove it out to the extent they're pushed to. But when you try to consolidate the case back in an unlimited lawsuit, then they'll say, oh, this is only about possession. It's 100% about possession. Uh, so touching briefly on this other case that Bill and I are presenting today, that one's short title is McManus versus NBS Default Services. And the other big players there were Bank of America, NationStar, and as we so often see, MERS. Now, what's interesting about this case, it's not that anything groundbreaking happened per se. What's promising, though, is it is 
It is a September 2018 ruling. Now, this is related to a motion to dismiss in federal court. Uh, a lot of listeners will know, particularly on the West Coast, particularly in non-judicial foreclosure states, that when when the borrower plaintiffs sue the institutional defendants in state court, this is very common in California, I believe it happens in other non-judicial state jurisdictions as well. What you will see happen a lot is that the institutional defendants will drag the case into federal court. Well, how do they do that? They do that by appealing to what's called diversity jurisdiction. And it's not the kind of diversity that we've come to know in the last five years in the cultural and political arena. This is an old school definition of diversity. Diversity simply means that one of the defendants, actually all of the defendants are not a California defendant. So where you have that be the case, and you do sometimes have that, then they can argue that uh, the case should not be uh, heard in state court, that it should be removed to federal court. So that's not that's not an uncommon uh, sort of procedural maneuver on the other side. They'll use these technical rules to get the case removed to federal court. And the reason they do that is twofold. I was going to say simple. It is simply twofold. And the reason for that is what they are doing is they know that the dismissal rules in federal court are more onerous particularly than they are in California state court. And they know that despite what people think, the federal court timeline and track line of the case, it's going to go quicker. Federal court cases typically actually go quicker, at least than state California cases. So this case was removed not too long after filing by the defendants to federal court out of this Northern California, El Dorado County. So it ended up in the Eastern District. Now then what happened is the defendants filed a motion to dismiss. And this is all pretty recent. Uh, the motion to dismiss was filed by MERS and NationStar. When you look at the procedural history of the case, Bank of America and the institutional trust defendant that would be NBS default services. They're not part of this particular motion. Their, their issues aren't at issue, so to speak, at this moment. So the, the complaint had a lot of the types of allegations you would see in this type of complaint. Of particular note, quiet title and wrongful foreclosure. Now, this, the, the, the sort of highlights and line of this case they do follow Ivanova closely. And I'm, I'm heartened to see that this judge did actually follow and reference specifically Ivanova. This case did go to a foreclosure, and it's quite appropriate to plead wrongful foreclosure in California where there's a chain of title problem case, and it actually went to auction just so here. I applaud the court recognizing this. 
and the motion to dismiss was shot down on that basis. So the wrongful foreclosure and the quiet title claims will go forward. Uh, yes, as words? will California's unfair competition law, too. Um, I just want to throw in real quick, if you don't mind, Charles, is I think it's just humorous that after 10 years and all the case law and these foreclosure cases, that at the hearing on this case uh, for the motion to dismiss, the, the, the bank lawyers couldn't even answer the most basic questions regarding the legal effect of the corporate assignments on the beneficial interests. They had no explanations to offer the court when asked these simple questions. So, you know, <laughs> you would think by now they would have they would have something in the can that they could recite, but they don't have any basis to uh, to, to a leg to stand on, even to argue against this in court, even to this day. Well, that's good information. Um, we will have to leave it there. And Bill and I, of course, will be back in the future episode. Uh, Neil will be with you next Thursday, and. Uh, uh, goodwill to everybody in the meantime. Thanks, Charles. Yep. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.